Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 531 with Stan Silverman. Stan is sharing how to differentiate yourself to get promoted, so you'll learn one, why failing is the first step to achieving more at work, two, how to take calculated risks that win at work, and three, why and how to break policy. So if you want to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, they're over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F531. And if you're new, hello, welcome. I recommend that you check out the Favorite episodes in between episodes numbered zero and one are some faves labeled A, B, C, D, E, F that have high levels of downloads and engagement. I think you'll dig them and will help you get oriented to what the show is all about. Now, here's Stan's story. Stan Silverman is the founder and CEO of Silverman Leadership. He's also a speaker, advisor, and author of Be Different, The Key to Business and Career Success. He is a nationally syndicated writer on the topics of leadership, entrepreneurship, and corporate governance, writing for several publications such as the Philadelphia Business Journal. Silverman has served on several public, private, private equity, and nonprofit boards and currently sits as a vice chairman of the board of trustees at Drexel University. He earned his Bachelor of Science degree in chemical engineering and an MBA from Drexel. He's also an alumnus of the Advanced Management Program at the Harvard Business School. Big thanks to Stan for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Stan. Stan, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, Pete, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I look forward to our discussion. I'm looking forward to it as well. And uh, and you've got a pretty unique story, well, maybe for, for nowadays, but I want to hear the scoop first of all. So you had 11 separate roles at PQ Corporation and ended at the top. Uh, so that's, that's pretty cool. We'll dig into some of that. But I guess I want to know first, what led you to stick with one organization uh, for such a long duration in your career? Well, I never intended to stay with PQ for so long, but I kept on getting promoted. And the hierarchy was above me was very, very supportive of what I was doing. And it was just a great company to work for. And so I stayed through uh, 11 jobs, including a stint in Canada as president of National Silicates Limited, uh, PQ's Canadian subsidiary. Came back as president of uh, PQ's Worldwide Industrial Chemicals Group, uh, became the COO of the company, and then uh, eventually the CEO. Cool. Well, I'd love to to dig into some particular moments in which you 
did some things that were, were differentiated and, and noteworthy such that you were the one they, they picked for, for the promotion. <laughs> so maybe we can go back in time and, and start semi-chronologically in terms of, could you maybe orient us to sort of what was your role? What was the your, your set of responsibilities? And, and how did you win <laughs> a promotion again and again? Well, thanks for allowing me to go through some history here. So uh, as I look back on my career at PQ, I, I was—I did a lot of firsts. I was the first one at the company to use uh, a computer to solve a, an engineering problem uh, and a finance problem versus uh, just pushing numbers around through the accounting uh, system. And so uh, way back then, and a lot of our listeners are much too young to, uh, to, to remember this, but we did a lot of work with uh, time sharing. So uh, we accessed a, a mainframe computer that was remote through a, a teletype machine that did 15 characters per second, and we read a time on the outside computer. And I was the first one at the company to build a model for doing discounted cash flow calculations, uh, looking at the uh, financial uh, attractiveness of various projects. And I did this while I was an engineer. And so I gravitated from uh, as uh, gravitated from process engineering to look into looking into the financial uh, attractiveness of the projects I was working on, and so that was a first at the company. And uh, from that point, I moved on to uh, production planning, to uh, financial analysis, where I was evaluating the uh, various alternatives for placing a plan in this city versus that city, for doing this versus that. And at the time, I was getting my MBA at Drexel University at night. And so I tied in what I was doing at work with my work at the university. I wrote a thesis for my master's program, which was a Monte Carlo simulation, which looked at various alternatives using probabilistic estimates for uh, inputs into a cash flow analysis. And I was able to test this at PQ and the various projects that we were working on. And so gradually, uh, surely, uh, slowly but surely, I moved from an engineering position to a financial analyst position to my first product manager position at the company, where I uh, moved over to the marketing side of the company. I was responsible for, for three product lines. Okay. Well, so, boy, there's, there's a lot in there I'd love to unpack. And so... Well, let's start with some of these firsts with regard to, so you're the first to use a computer to uh, solve some of these these financial questions using uh, the discounted cash flow analysis. Well, what got into you that made you say, you know what, this is what I'm going to go do, <laughs> because I, I think it would probably be more normative for engineers to continue doing their engineering. But you you popped your head up and, and said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check out something different. How did that come about? Well, I've always been curious uh, about uh, things which um, would allow me to grow and develop my skills in other areas other than engineering. And when I got my my chemical engineering degree, I decided that I did not want to rise up through the engineering route uh, because I felt that was too limiting. I wanted to follow the business route. And that's why I got my MBA so that I would be in positions where I would make strategic decisions with respect to the future of my businesses and eventually the company rather than building plants for the products that we made. And it was just an interest in doing that, in, in, in making decisions 
on the strategic side of the business versus the engineering side of the business that uh, pushed me and uh, led me to get my MBA degree. And I've always been very curious. I've been very, uh, you know, testing new things, looking at new things, uh, trying out things. And really, that's what drove me my entire career is uh, that curiosity. Uh, And it really goes way, way back to when I was a teenager at the age of 12, my dad got me my first uh, chemistry set, and uh, I exhausted all the experiments probably within three months, and I got a little bored, and I decided that I would try something new. So I thought it would be really cool if I made gunpowder to uh, pack into uh, to a firecracker and set off the firecracker. So I started up on it and uh, learned how to do that with my chemistry set. That sounds like fun to me. <laughs> yeah, it was, really, it was really a lot of fun. But it, the creative part wasn't actually formulating the gunpowder. You can look that up anywhere. And at the time, we didn't have the internet. So, of course, I had to go to the library to do this. But it was actually designing the fuse to set it off so that I wouldn't blow my hand apart. I decided that I would run wires from my Lionel train transformer to the firecracker that I built and, and bury those wires with a match head inside the, uh, the powder and then set it off 30 feet away. And sure enough, it worked. And so this is a future engineer at the age of 13 now, basically in his backyard fooling around with this stuff. And of course, in today's world, you can't possibly do that because you'd have Homeland Security and the local police department all over you for doing this. And so we've really taken some innocence away from kids that just like to play in the basement or in the backyard or in the garage and just kind of tinker with things. And so uh, that's kind of a, a, a negative to uh, to the world that we're in. We've we've taken some innocence away from uh, from our children in terms of allowing them to just roam and develop. Well, I hear that theme. So the curiosity, the testing, exploring, trying out new things. I guess I, I'm intrigued because I think that this is common. I'd say part of the human experience. You know, we're curious. We want to explore and seek new things. And and yet, I think a lot of folks in the professional setting. Uh, experience some some fear or a resistance internal and or external uh, so that they they sort of shut those instincts down how do you observe the ways in which professionals kind of shoot themselves in the foot or or, or prevent themselves from exploring and and rising as a result well i think it gets down to a feeling and, and of self-confidence in yourself Uh, I coach and counsel a lot of students right now in my career. Uh, And of course, I'm in with the launching of my book. I started my fourth career, which we'll get into in a a little later on in the interview. But one of the things I do is I I talk to a lot of students today. And I talk to a lot of professionals who are stuck in a rut, who don't like what they're doing, who want to know what the path is to, to leave what they're doing and do something more interesting. And of course, it's completely up to them. They have to find their own path. But I find that there are many, many people in this world, and I'm going to go to the extreme here, that do the same thing for 45 years after they graduate and never step out uh, to try something new. They don't like what they do, but they don't, they don't try something new because they're afraid of failure. Uh, they're afraid that uh, it's not going to work out. They have a safety blanket in what they uh, in their current position and in, in their current role. And for 45 years, they just never do anything. And you go to the other extreme, you have people that are constantly developing uh, themselves, constantly pushing forward, trying things, failing uh, sometimes. And of course, failure is a normal part of life, and we should all get used to that. And as I tell the folks that I counsel, uh, you can feel bad 
that night, but the next morning you get get up and get back at it because it's a new day and a new world and you have to move forward. And I don't know if you're familiar with Seth Godin, who is a, uh, a futurist. Certainly. He wrote a book called The Icarus Dilemma, and he writes about uh, Icarus, who, of course, is a character in Greek mythology who flew too close to the sun. His wings melted and fell off his back, and he crashed into the sea. And what Godin says is, should have Icarus flown lower and safer so he didn't wouldn't crash into the sea? And he says, no, of course not, because it's actually more dangerous to fly too low than it is to fly too high. Because if you fly too low, you'll never know what you're made of, and you'll never deliver the kind of results or contributions to society that society needs. And so uh, I added actually something in my book uh, about that. I, I also said that if you fly too low, and all of a sudden your job disappears and the technology moves on and you have to get a new job. If you fly too low, you never know what you're made of and it's harder to get a new job. So fly high and if you fly too close to the sun and you, you, you fail and you crash into the sea, the next morning you'll get up and fly again. And that's really the only way to be successful long term. You have to take risks. You have to get back out there and try something new and different. And that's what entrepreneurs are taught. Entrepreneurs are taught to fail. It's a key element of being an entrepreneur because you're going to try, you know, many, many different things before you find success, but you learn have to learn how to pivot and move on to the next thing. And so that's what drives a lot of the, uh, the comments I make to folks that I that coach and counsel. But, you know, as you talk about that Icarus metaphor, and we've also been talking about finance, you know, my, my mind just is bringing them together as I think about sort of risk taking in, in financial investments. Like if you take no risk and just sort of see, do what your savings account will do for you, well, then you are going to kind of crash in the sense of inflation is is just sort of taking away your your wealth. And, and so it, in essence, in both instances, or Icarus, uh, financial investing and uh, career risk taking, you you have to take some level of risk because none is more dangerous than some. Exactly, and what everybody has to do is learn how to mitigate their risk. So you try to control the risk, and the way you do an investment, of course, in investing is that you diversify your portfolio. And so you don't go after the home runs every day. You go after the slow and steady. And the slow and steady, by all accounts and by all the data and all the studies, wins over the long term. So it's slow and steady, slow and steady. So you mitigate your risk. And in business, of course, a lot of people ask me, uh, well, what do you mean by mitigating your risk? How do you mitigate risk? And I always use the example, let's assume that you're a manager in your company and you need to make a decision which you have all the authority in the world to make. You don't have to ask anybody else. You can either make it or not make it. You can go direction A or direction B. It's up to you. But you feel that it's risky and you want to mitigate the risk. Well, what do you do? Well, you talk to people. You get other people's opinions. You don't have to do what they say. But you get other people's opinions, so it expands your, your view of what you may do or may not do, and you move forward. A lot of people think that by asking other people their opinion, it's a weakness. Wrong. It's a huge strength. And you should always be asking people, getting their opinions, getting their input, and you, you're going to make the final decision by, you know, on your own. But at least you have that input. A lot of people don't realize that 
they need to, when they feel that something is very risky or even a modicum of risk and they want to get an opinion, it's okay to get it. It's okay to get an opinion before you move forward. Well, yeah, I was just about to ask about some some strategies and approaches when if you do have some of that fear of failure, you don't want to let go of your safety blanket. Well, I guess one point is just you have to. <laughs> right, right. But emotionally, there, there's right. still a bridge to cross. Right. Uh, how do you suggest folks do it? One is to to seek the wisdom of other counsel. What else? Well, you have to fall back on your experience and your critical judgment and common sense. So a lot of the decisions we make, uh, we don't always have all the information we would like to have. We, we don't have that information and you can't get it or you don't have time to get it. So what do we all do? We fall back on our common sense, a good critical judgment. And when we do that, and when we do have good common sense and critical judgment developed over the years through our experiences, because that's how you get that, we make a lot more right decisions than we make wrong decisions. And so uh, that's just part of life. You're going to be making decisions without having all the knowledge and all the information you would like. So let's flip it around for a moment and let's let's assume that you're the leader of a, of a, of a group and you have one of your employees or many of your employees actually making decisions and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. You have to allow your employees to make mistakes. It's the only way they're going to grow and develop. And one of the prime responsibilities of every leader is to develop future leaders below them. And the only way to do that is to tell them what your expectations are, make sure they have the right resources and cut them loose to do their thing. And sometimes it's not going to work out and sometimes it will work out. But if you have good people reporting to you and you've hired people with good common sense and critical judgment and allowed people to develop that common sense and good critical judgment, uh, you're going to win in the long term. You're going to have a lot more wins than you're going to have losses. And you just have to tolerate that. So there are many bosses that won't allow uh, they're people to, to make mistakes. Those kind of people you don't want in your organization. If you're the board or you're the CEO, you got to get rid of them because you're not going to go anywhere. You're just not going to get anywhere. And, and I mean, you said common sense and critical judgment. I, I was just chatting with some folks about how that seems to be not so common. And I would love to get your take on, are there any particular decision-making frameworks, tools, key questions you ask yourself to to bring forth more common sense and judgment to situations? Well, let's, let's take a real life example. Let's take Starbucks, for example. They're really blasted a couple times a year for what the baristas do or not do in their in their cafes and of course the, the the most important one and the one that had huge ramifications around the world this is the one that occurred in philadelphia but a year or so ago when the barista at the starbucks in center city philadelphia near rittenhouse square uh ordered two gentlemen to leave because they claimed they were waiting for their friend to arrive before they ordered something and they were just sitting there and she said well if you don't order something i have to ask you to leave and they didn't leave so she called the police the police came and arrested these two guys they were two african-american gentlemen and as they were leaving their friend shows up and their friend says you know what's going on and they tell him and of course this got blasted all over the world. And in fact, Starbucks had to shut down their cafes to do sensitivity training uh, in this area. And had the barista exercised good critical judgment and common sense, she would have said, okay, you know, when you're ready, 
You can come up and order something when your friend gets here. That's how you diffuse. So you should always diffuse the situation. These guys weren't harming anything. They weren't, they weren't creating a ruckus. They were sitting at tables that weren't needed by other people. So you always diffuse. You always diffuse the situation. And so she got blasted. In three or four other instances around the country, Baristas have refused to, uh, I think it was, uh, I can't remember the city, it might have been Arizona, where a pregnant woman came in and wanted to use the bathroom and she, and the barista said, uh, you can't use it unless you buy something. And then the news report claims that even after her husband offered to buy something, she wasn't uh, allowed to use the bathroom. Well, what was, what were they thinking? So therefore, I one of my prime tenets whenever I coach and counsel future leaders and current leaders is don't hire anybody if they don't have common sense and good critical judgment. Do not hire them, especially if they're customer facing. Do not hire them. Even internally, even if they're not customer facing, you don't want to hire these people. And there are tests to test for this, which of course aren't on 100%. But you don't want to hire people who don't exercise common sense and good critical judgment because you're liable to get blasted for a mistake they make on social media, which of course happens within minutes around the world. And it kills your reputation. It kills your reputation. And then of course, you have to rebuild that reputation, but you never really regain it back. Yeah. Well, and so when you say test for this, are you talking about commercially available oh, yes. assessments? There are tests for it. And do you have a fave that you lean on or have historically? No, I actually, I, I, I don't. When I hire people, I interview them at length and I talk about, I want them to explain their experiences when they've had to handle certain situations which were sensitive. And I, I just, I do it through interview, but there are tests, there are commercial available tests which can test for that. And among other things, they can test for for new employees. It's interesting and I've, I've, I wonder, maybe it's just too too expansive and complex to boil down into a couple of rules of thumb because you know it's sort of like you would hope that you won't ha- wouldn't have to tell somebody don't make people leave <laughs> allow folks to to use the bathroom and, and I guess hey some operational manuals will will you know hey, spell it out and and that could be helpful certainly if folks that don't have that critical reasoning or judgment but so it seems like you shared one principle there in terms of hey when possible try to diffuse situations as opposed to inflame them <laughs> good rule of thumb i think that would would serve uh, 99% of us well just about all the time any other key principles that you you come back to again and again well i i have a key principle which a lot of ceos don't agree with me on and when i give speeches in front of uh, meetings of leaders uh, i get a lot of pushback on this And the principle is this, the principle is this, it's okay to violate a rule or a a policy or procedure, violate a policy or procedure when it's in the best interest of the company to do so. And you need people who uh, have common sense and good critical judgment working for you to know when to do that. And I'll give you, I'll give you my aha. So I'm a 26-year-old business manager for my company, and we're making a, uh, a product on the West Coast which goes into pharmaceuticals. And I get a call from the plant that he, the plant manager just discovered that there's some iron filings in the product that weren't picked out by the magnet. And he gave me the lot numbers. And so uh, this product had to come back. It would have to come back anyway, but especially for going into a pharmaceutical use, it has to come back. The problem is I don't have the authority to order a recall. My boss and the CEO are traveling in Europe. And this is the, in the years before cell phones and before email and before text messaging. And every moment, almost every hour, every day that we wait to recall the product, it goes further and further into distribution and eventually perhaps gets into one of our customers' final products. So the cost of 
recalling this product goes up exponentially every day. And so I made the decision at my young age to recall the product. And my people are saying, you don't have, Stan, you don't have the authority to recall the product. I said, it's got to come back. It's got to come back. And so uh, I said to them, either I'm going to be celebrated or terminated. Mm -hmm. And so I recalled the product. And when the two guys got back, my boss, who was vice president, general manager, industrial chemicals group, and the CEO came back. I told them what I did. And they, they celebrated me. They said, you did the right thing. So here, here I am, a 26-year-old, just starting out my career, you know, a couple of years into my career thinking, boy, I've just learned something. You want to hire people who have good common sense and critical judgment because I want them to violate principles and policies and procedures when it's in the best interest of the company to do so. And they need to know when it's in the best interest. They need to know when it's in the best interest. And so that has governed my management leadership philosophy that I give my people permission to do so. I give my people permission to do so when there's no one around to check with and a decision has to be made. I want them to make the decision, the right decision even if it violates the company policy. Yes, well, I, I think that's that's dead on. And I, I can understand why senior executives, that makes them uncomfortable. It's sort of like, I'm not fully confident that I have the people in my organization I can trust with that. Well, let me, let me give you a perfect example. So I'm not going to name the company, okay? I won't name the company on air, but I'm waiting for this to happen so I can write a, an article about it. And so here you have a, a person who greets uh, customers at the door when they come in, and that's the person's job. That's the, the employee's job. And the employee sees an elderly individual pushing a cart full of product that uh, they just bought in the store out to their car, and they're having trouble pushing the cart. So I'll use the masculine. He leaves his post to help unload the, the, uh, the cart into the customer's trunk and returns back three minutes later. And because he left his post and that broke policy, the store manager fires that individual. This happened or you're waiting for this to happen? No, no, I'm just waiting for it to happen <laughs> so I can write about it, right? It's probably happened somewhere. We just don't know it. <laughs> and so this is all hypothetical. And of course, I'm not naming any store. And so the store manager fires this individual. And so if I was the regional manager of all the, a bunch of stores in a region and I found that that's what, would, that's what happened, I would probably fire the store manager. Because you didn't allow your employee to break policy for the good of the company. It didn't hurt for him to be away for two or three minutes. In fact, he created a lot of goodwill by helping this elderly individual load the car. So he broke policy. So what? Again, you diffuse the situation. There's no harm. And it was in the best interest of the company to do so. And you wouldn't believe how many people disagree with me. I mean, they, I have a lot of CEOs and a lot of senior leadership when I speak about this. I do a lot of speaking on various topics. And when I describe this, they push back and say, no, 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 no. That person should never break policy. Well, of course they should. Certainly. Well, I, I'm in your camp and I think it all just depends on who did you hire and how much do you trust them? Exactly. And really what's that stake? I mean, is the greeter also a, a loss prevention person? And if they're, if they've left their post, $50,000 worth of high end electronics are going to go out the door. I mean, maybe that's a different scenario, but uh, most right. likely there's very little downside and very much upside to helping a customer out. So let, let's, let's look at the extreme. I always like to test the yeah. outside of the envelope. So let's look at the extreme. Extreme, okay, so that's at one end of the extreme. The other end of the extreme is that you're running a nuclear power plant making electricity. You never, ever, ever want the operators of that plant to break policy by themselves, ever. 
because the downside is catastrophic. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, if something has to be done and it could be different than policy, you want to get that checked up, up and down the line and have a lot of people involved in that discussion before anything ever gets done. And so, you know, it depends on the situation that you're in. I mean, look at Boeing today. Boeing, it was announced that uh, the CEO was terminated by the board because of the 737 MAX issues over the past year. And of course, that if you go all the way back, uh, the FAA allowed Boeing to do a lot of the quality checks and balances that were really the job of the FAA. They, they uh, delegated that down to the company and to the engineers within the company. Well, I got to tell you, that is closer to the nuclear power plant example that I just gave. If I was the FAA, I would never, ever delegate that down. And if I was, if I was Boeing, I would never permit, permit us to do that. That's the job of the FAA. So that the friend, the best friend of the CEO at Boeing is to have the FAA do their independent checks and certification of the, of the plane and not have my people do it. I would never allow my people to do it because the consequence of a mistake is catastrophic. They had two, two airline crashes. And let's push it. Let's go to the other end. So I'm the CEO of my company and we, in our chemical plants, we allow the chemical operators, the operators of the plant to do quality assurance on our, on the product they shipped out. And so therefore they will have ownership in the production because they will have ownership in the quality. And so the worst that can happen is planes don't go down, but a product goes out that's off spec and the customer tests it and they send it back. So it costs us some money. Mm-hmm. And so you have to look along the continuum where that decision gets made. For nuclear power plants and for, for air- aircraft certification, you don't want anybody making unilateral decisions that break policy. On the other end of the extreme, when you see a, a customer you know, carrying out packages to the car and they need help, or when you're testing a, a chemical product where the only downside is it's off spec, Maybe that's it. You know, that's way over to the to the end. So you got to figure out where you are in the continuum. Well, well that that totally makes sense and, and adds up. Yes, uh, I'd like to get your your view then when it comes to kind of zooming out and thinking across these promotions. You've said part of it was was firsts and curiosity and and pursuing new things and you know finding the self confidence and managing your risk and, and delivering value. Any other kind of sort of core things that you tend to see over and over again that makes the difference between those who who get the promotion and, and those who are passed over for the promotion? Yes. In fact, I, I'd like to tell you a story, which is my favorite story, which really was most impactful to me. And I think to answer your question, people that get promoted learn lessons from everybody within the organization. So I'm president of our Canadian company and uh, subsidiary of PQ Corporation. And we had a small production unit which produced a product for high temperature uh, refractory cements. And so when I was president of our Canadian company, we had a production unit which made a a product for high uh, temperature and acid resistant refractory cements. The unit was sold out. It was at capacity. It was very high margin product. The product was growing. And we were basically out of capacity. So the one gentleman who operated this unit was working all kinds of overtime. So we needed to expand the unit. And our marketing department came up with projections that we really needed a 50% increase in capacity to handle the demand over the next five to six to seven years. And so rather than give the project to one of the corporate engineers, we decided that that would not be the best thing to do. This was a very small 
very small unit. I estimated that to expand the unit by 50%, it's probably a half a million dollar job. And the engineers, of course, want to work on millions and $10 million projects because that's how they get promoted because they're very complex projects. This is a very simple project. So the plant manager and I decided to give the uh, the assignment to the operator who runs the, runs the unit and ask him, well, you know, how would you expand this unit? So we called Luigi, the operator of the uh, of the plant, of, of this production unit into my office. And he looks around and says, am I being fired? I said, <laughs> well, Luigi, why do you think that? He said, I've never been to your office. I said, no, 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 we're not going to fire you. In fact, we want to ask you how to expand your unit because we know that you're working all kinds of uh, overtime hours. It's hard work. We want to expand the unit. So how, how do you think we should do it? He says, oh, I know exactly how to do it, but nobody's ever asked me. No, but you're the first you person go. to ever, ever ask me how I can expand the unit I've been working on for the last 10 years. I said, well, would you work on it? He said, yes, but I need the help of a mechanic. And very quickly, we said, pick your man. He says, I picked Don McNeil, who was the, uh, the, the probably the best mechanic in the plant at the time. Excellent mechanic, but he was terrible with respect to labor management relationships, always filing grievances, always wanting to go on strike, uh-huh. bad-mouthing. <laughs> he was a negative opinion leader in the plant. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a huge disaster, right? So we tell Luigi, well, you ask Don tomorrow morning, and then we'll ask him in the afternoon and see if he'll do this. So we see him, the, we go out and see Don that the next afternoon and he says, oh, I spoke with Luigi this morning. I'll, I'll do this, but I'm not doing it for you. I'm going to help him expand this unit because Luigi's my friend, but I'm not doing it for you. I just want you to understand it. We said, okay, Don, we understand. Go to work. Noted. Well, four weeks later, they come into my office and they present the scope of the expansion to get a 50% increase in capacity. And this, is, of course, is before PowerPoint. This is when you had these overhead projectors and you had these slides, you know, that you put on the overhead projectors. So they explained the scope and I'm thinking, my God, this is so creative. I never would have thought of this. Don McNeil did something that we never asked him to do. He cost estimated the project out. Well, of course, Don works with contractors all the time, so he knows what it costs to do things. He comes up with an estimate of $260,000 to do the project. I'm guessing 500, right? So we say to them, okay, guys, we're going to do it. You're in charge of, of doing it. You're in charge of managing the project. Well, that's not our job. You know, that's a project mm-hmm. manager's job. It says, well, look, the, the, the unit's going to be down for a period of time, so you have to work in the, the construction along with production. You're the perfect people to do this. Well, okay, we'll do it. Two months later, the plant's done. The unit comes back up on stream. Within seven days, they're at a 50% increase in capacity, exactly what we asked them to do. Within two weeks, they're at a 64% increase in capacity. The product's coming out much tighter within specification, perfect quality, much easier for Luigi to operate the plant, and off we're, and we're off and running. And he bring, and Don brings the project in at $250,000, 10000 less than what he told us it would be. I think he did that on purpose. (laughs) And so all four of us changed fundamentally, fundamentally. Don McNeil is now walking through the plant telling his fellow union brother and the blue-collar workers that that operate the plant that, you know, these guys at management, they're not so bad. They trusted me for what I could do with my mind in addition to what I could do with my hands. You know how powerful that statement is? And he's now a positive opinion leader in the plant. Luigi changed in this way. And so about two weeks after startup of his, uh, of his unit, uh, I'm taking a visitor through the entire plant. We stop at his production unit 
And Luigi says, I'll take the visitor on tour of my uh, production unit. I said, okay. So he does so. And uh, after the tour, we head off to the other six production uh, units within the plant. The next day, Luigi stops me and says, do you know why I did what I did yesterday? I said, what'd you do? He says, I took the visitor for the tour. I said, yeah, I know. He said, I did it because this is my unit, not your unit. This is my unit. We created a sense of ownership in Luigi for his production unit. And I'm thinking, oh my God, how come I didn't learn this right out of school? You have to create sense of ownerships in everybody for what they do within the company, and then great things will happen. And that has stuck with me for the decades after that incident occurred. And sure enough, it's proven true every single time. You create a sense of ownership in people in terms of what they do, and great things will happen. And so therefore, I learned something from an hourly guy, probably one, two, three, four levels below me at a production plant. And everybody realizes they can learn from everybody, including the people at the bottom of the organization. Stan, I love it. Good stuff. Thank you. Uh, Tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Well, I, I, I do, but I think let's let's move on and I'll I'll kind of weave it in as we as we go along if the opportunity uh, arises. Oh, sure thing. How about a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring? My favorite quote is is never lie to yourself. So I have a chapter in my book, chapter one five, which is about the uh, Challenger uh, explosion and disaster, which all of us are very familiar with. And it turns out that. There was the the Thiokol engineers who designed the O-rings for their solid rocket boosters basically advised NASA not to launch, not to launch the shuttle on the day they wanted to launch because the temperature uh, outside, the ambient temperature, was 30 degrees Fahrenheit. And they designed the O-rings for 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, they felt the O-rings were going to be too brittle. And there was a huge risk of uh, leakage of fuel around the O-rings because they were brittle, which would, of course, of course cause a disaster. And the Thiokol uh, engineers lost the battle because they faced huge, huge pressure by NASA. And uh, I'm just going to quote two comments by, I'm looking it up now, that by a NASA manager. Um, I say, one NASA manager is quoted as saying, I'm appalled by your recommendation, Thiokol. Another NASA manager said, my God, Thiokol, when do you want me to launch next April? So they didn't listen to their experts. They didn't listen to their experts. They went ahead and launched. And of course, we know what the uh, what the result was. Uh, we lost the shuttle plus five uh, astronauts. And that taught me a huge lesson. The lesson is you always have to listen to your experts. Always listen to your experts. Don't discount them. That's why you have them around you. And... Uh, when I after I wrote the my article, one of the engineer or one of the Thiokol engineers' daughter, this is Robert Ebeling, who was the Thiokol engineer, his daughter reached out to me because my email is at the end of all my articles. And I talked with her a half an hour about what her dad went through that day. And she was actually with him during that launch day. And she said he's held himself responsible, personally responsible for thirty years for the crash and the disaster of the shuttle, when in fact he tried to stop it. But the managers at NASA decided to launch anyway. So I said to her, I said, Leslie, would you mind if I called your dad and spoke with him on the phone? She says he would love to hear from you. So I got his number. He was in a um, 
in an assisted living facility, really dying of cancer. And so I got him. He, he was very, very sick. I called him the next day, and I spoke with him for a good 20 minutes. And I said, uh, Mr. Ebeling, I said, you and your fellow engineers at Thiokol are true American heroes because you tried to stop the ca- catastrophe, but you couldn't. But don't have that. Don't feel that that's your burden. You did your best. He died five days later. And so that was a very, very compelling moment for me when I spoke with uh, with Robert Ebling and the author of the quote, if you want to be successful, you must respect one rule, never lie to yourself. It was by Paulo Coelho, a Brazilian novelist, a very renowned individual. And uh, that's my favorite quote because had Thiokol not lied to, had NASA not lied to themselves, they would have listened to their engineers and not launched the shuttle. Mm-hmm. So that's a lesson for all of us. Never lie to yourself. And how about a favorite book? Oh, uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins. Absolutely. It's a book that a lot of people have written. I probably read it three times. I listened to a tape on it. And what Jim Collins says is that when you decide where to take your company, you need to pick the right people, put them on the bus, put them on the right seats, and they will decide where to take the bus. And so you unilaterally aren't going to be very successful, at least most of the time, if you decide where your company should go without your people got buying into it so they have ownership in it. And so every time I've made strategic decisions and and changed the strategic direction, I've had input from the people who work for me, who report to me. I, I trust them. I've hired them with good critical judgment and common sense. And we argue our points. We argue all the time. And I'll have a story to tell you about that in a moment. And so you have to staff your company re- with people reporting to you who aren't afraid to talk with to you, who aren't afraid to say you're wrong. And you need to listen to that. If you're the CEO that can't take being told you're wrong, you're not going to be very successful. You're not going to be very successful. So this is the story. So when I was chief operating officer of the company, I would come up with an idea proposal and I would talk to the CEO about implementing it. And more often than not, before I could finish talking about it, I would hear from him, well, it's not going to work. I would say, well, don't tell me it's not going to work. First, let me explain the whole whole thing and then tell me it won't work. And so I started writing him memos which, of course, he would read it without me in the room, and you have to read the whole memo. You page, page, and they have memo. He'd come in and say, boy, this is a great idea. Let's get it done. And so that's how we got stuff done. So when he left the company and I became the CEO, I swore that we would change that cultural norm because he did that with everybody. And the cultural norm would be this. So I would not often kind of give my opinion on how we should go somewhere in a direction. I would kind of tease it out of my folks. and But every once in a while, I would say, you know, I think we should go direction A on this certain issue. Well, if my CFO or the head of our chemicals group didn't agree with me, I would expect them to say, no, Stan, I don't think that's right. I think rather than go direction A, which is your direction, I think we should go direction B. Well, how I react to that comment will forevermore in the future govern the dynamic between that individual and myself. Rather than say, I don't want to hear it, just go direction A, which is bad, I would say, well, Bill, why do you think we should go direction B? Or why, Mike, do you think we should direction C? And we would debate A versus B. We would bring in experts. We would bring in people very knowledgeable. We would debate it for a day, for a week, for a month. And at the end of that discussion, one of three things would happen. I would say, Bill, thank you very much for suggesting B, but we beat A up against B and B up against A, and I really think A is the way to go, so that's the way we're going to go. 
Uh, and we would go that direction. Or I would say, Bill, thank you for suggesting B. After beating one up against the other, I think B is the better alternative. And Bill would feel really good that I picked his alternative. But more than more often than not, and this is real live data, real live experience, more often than not, because we debated A versus B, we would find direction C better than A and B, and we would go direction C. Well, when we did that, we really made a mistake. And it's one of the reasons why we drove earnings from $14 million to $43 million over a five-year period, which included the year of 9-11, 2001, plus the horrible recession of 2002. We never had a down quarter during that recession because we debated things as equals. As equals, we debated things. And that, I think, is just a huge, huge cultural norm within any company to really get great results. You debate, and then you pick the right one, pick the right direction. Yeah, totally. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, they can read my book. Uh, My book is called Be Different, The Key to Business and Career Success. And it talks a lot about uh, leadership. It talks a lot about tone at the top and culture. But the focus uh, in the book is it, it teaches every business every business how to be better than their competition so that they become the preferred provider of product or service to their marketplace so that their customers or clients want to buy from them preferentially above any of the competition. And it doesn't matter whether or not you make widgets, whether or not you're an accounting firm, whether you're an attorney, you're a doctor, you're a surgeon, you're a hospital, whether you put roofs on houses or you sell bicycles in a bike shop. You want to be the preferred provider so that anybody that needs a roof on their house or medical treatment or surgery or wants to buy a bicycle, they want to buy from you versus the competition. And I teach how to do that. The other part of the book is that all of us, as we all rise up through our careers, become better than our peers so that we get the next promotion or the next job on the outside of the company. And so that's what the book is about. It's about how to do that. It's about how to do that. And I have a lot of examples of uh, great leaders and leaders that aren't so great, great companies and companies that aren't so great, a lot of boards which are great boards and boards that aren't so great. And uh, it's really a, a handbook for success, future success for your company or for yourself. And you can buy it at Barnes & Noble, or if you want to buy the Kindle version, you can buy the Kindle version on Amazon, amazon amazon.com, or barnesandnoble.com for the uh, hard copy. Lovely. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? (laughs) Well, yeah. I, I, I think you have to decide. We all have legacies. We all have to think about what our legacies are going to be. What do we want to leave this world what do we want to leave this world when we uh, when we check out? And my legacy is I want to be able to say that I created a bunch of great leaders and help them develop and be successful. I want to help companies develop and be successful. And so I start I start a lot of talks off. I say, you know, what is the holy grail of, of any of any business of any individual? What's the one thing everybody every business or what's the one thing? Everybody wants, what is the holy grail? And, every, you know, th- three or four people raise their hand. And one of those uh, responses is to make money. I said, well, that's certainly something everybody wants to do. But that's a measurement of how well you do on something else. 
money is a measurement of how well you do. It's not the objective. Because if, if it's the objective, there are other ways to make a lot more money. And so I tell them that if you're running your company, you want to be the preferred provider of product and service to your marketplace and give a great customer experience. That's what you want to do. And as you rise through your career, you want to be better than your peers. And that should be your holy grail as you develop your career. And of course, at my point in life, my holy grail is to help other people be successful. And that's what I do every single day by coaching and counseling and writing about this. All right, Stan, this has been a pleasure. Thanks so much and and keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Pete. It was really great being a guest on your show and I greatly appreciate uh, having the opportunity to, to talk with you today. I really appreciated Stan's take about always being curious and trying to learn, grow, test, and try out new things. Because one, I guess that's just how I like to roll. And and two, I think a lot of folks, if you're bored in your job, and and it happens, you know, not every day can be a thrill ride. But if you're bored in your job, then this is really a win-win in terms of bringing some more exciting, interesting, cool stuff into your world, as well as pushing you to grow and expand. So sometimes what's new and interesting and exciting is also kind of scary and spooky. But I dare say it is a better trade to make in order to have more fun and joy at your job. And certainly in terms of learning, growing, developing, getting promotions and being all the more, well, awesome at your job. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep. 531. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. We're talking to Molly Fletcher. She's a former sports agent, one of the first women sports agents, and she has got a load of insight into how to manage your energy to do your best at work and beyond. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.